Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the War on the War on Terrorism edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, sweating, sweltering in Washington D.C. before this lovely Fourth of July holiday. You guys ready for the Fourth of July? You know, it, National Independence. It wouldn't be the Fourth of July if it were not sweltering in Washington. That's right. Besides, we're going to a private island for the Fourth of July in the United States. Yes, <laughs> really. Where is this private island? Uh, in New it, England. In New England. In New England. Yeah. It it will be. We hope at least five degrees cooler there. It probably will be. Yeah, you're being very secretive about this. It's the kind of thing you have to be secretive about. Oh, you see. you don't want the hoi polloi showing up. Oh, I think I know what this is. Okay, I'm not going to probe. But you can tell me more about it if you want to. We will be talking about terrorism and counterterrorism policy on the island, though. <laughs> you're up to something. Um, you know those voices. I'm joined, as always, by my friends Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And my friend Ben with us. Hello, Ben. Cheerio. Cheerio. Um, this week on the show... Uh, senators call for hearings on domestic terrorism in the wake of the Charleston shootings. Do we need a new national commission on the war on terrorism? And a cat fight between the FISA court and the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Meow! Yeah, that was a nasty one. We're going to have fun talking about that. Uh, plus, in our object lessons, we're going to talk about equip. Equip. Are you equipped? We'll find out. The federal government is not equipped. <laughs> China is very equipped. We'll get to that in the object lesson. Uh, let's get right to it. So my, I guess I'll start with my wordplay, uh, which is a letter that six Democratic senators sent uh, Tuesday to Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, doing two things. One, calling the Charleston church shootings an act of domestic terrorism. They affixed that label to it and quoted the statutory definition, as we talked about on the show uh, last week. What is the definition of terrorism? They seem to think that this fits, uh, and have called for hearings uh, on the issue. They want Grassley to hold hearings, they said plural, uh, and are basically sort of positioning this as um, we need to dig in more to radical extremism, domestic extremism, um, racially fueled violence and terrorism, uh, and treat that, it seems, from their view, at least on the level of seriousness that we treat uh, uh, Islamic uh, religious fanaticism and terrorism of the variety we've been dealing with um, for the past 15 years or so. Um, you know, it could just be just another hearing that amounts to nothing. But I guess what I'm sort of interested in, what I want to get you guys' take on, is A, do you think it's worthwhile to have hearings on domestic terrorism in the wake of the Charleston shootings? Or is that, you know, making more of it than it is? And B, what is your sense on whether or not we are running the risk of now starting to apply the domestic terrorism label to all kinds of things that we wouldn't have applied it before? And I think some people would argue this, that we're maybe making the, in their view, the same mistake that we did after 9-11, which was to start being very liberal and loose with how we slap the word terrorism on things. So who were the signatories to this letter, other than, other than Senator Leahy? So the six signatories were um, Senator Blumenthal, Senator Leahy, Senator Feinstein, uh, Senator Durbin, Coons, and Al Franken. So I guess my first thought about this is it would be a very bad thing if we came to map the question of 
do you think uh, white supremacist uh, shootings count as terrorism onto our partisan political uh, map such that you know the Republican position is no this is a hate crime uh, and the Democratic position is no this is terrorism I, I, I think if there's anything that should not get a political valence, how about the question? How about this? Um, look, I I think it's obviously terrorism of a form. It's a terrorism that we have a very long history with, and that is in many ways a qualitatively different problem than the problem of overseas. Uh, terrorism of of an Islamist nature or predating that of a you know generally Middle Eastern but sometimes um, you know Irish nature it's a, a problem that certainly deserves a lot of attention including congressional hearings um, and the least important aspect of wh is whether you call it terrorism or not or whether you call it something else you know um I think there there are some substantive reasons why it's worth maintaining, I don't say adopting, but maintaining the domestic terrorism label as it applies to this kind of white supremacist violence. As Ben said, there's a long history of this, and there's a long history of treating these kinds of efforts as domestic terrorism. And we talked about this a week or so ago when we were talking about the Oklahoma City bombing. But the, the substantive policy reasons, I think, are, number one, that people who have this agenda and attempt to carry out such attacks in American society are attacking the coherence of our society, the resilience of our democracy in a fundamental way. And no democracy is immune from terrorism. The idea that terrorism is something that only occurs in, you know, these backward places is a myth. And so it's important for us to recognize that we, like every society, are vulnerable to these sicknesses and we have to combat them. There's also bureaucratic politics reason, I think, why holding these hearings are important, which is that we traditionally, the United States and local law enforcement and, and the FBI did devote resources to these right-wing extremist groups inside the United States. A lot of those resources got diverted after 9-11 to Islamist terrorism. And so holding hearings is a way of recalling attention and hopefully recalling a better balance in uh, CT resources to make sure that we don't ignore this threat. There are organizations and some local law enforcement and state law enforcement that have been following this the whole time with concern, raising alarm bells about the fact that resources have been reduced to this threat. And so I think it's time for a corrective. It seems like that's kind of what the, the, the gist of the letter was getting at, too, when it, towards the end, it, um, the senators mentioned that in 2012, following a mass shooting by a white supremacist at a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, the Judiciary Committee, Subcommittee on Civil Rights, the Constitution, and Human Rights, held a hearing on hate crimes and the threat of domestic extremism. And they're saying it is clearly time for the Judiciary Committee to revisit the issue. We should look at how domestic terrorist hate organizations, domestic terrorist hate organizations, they call them, recruit and spread their ideas, how they gain access to the tools they use to commit violent acts, and how their members and followers reach the decision to commit murder, which is essentially the same set of questions that we are asking right now about radical Islamic organizations. And I think that, I mean, when you talk about, like, ISIS recruitment and 
facilitation of attacks and how they move their money and how they recruit people and how they plan. And I think that just judging from some of the reaction on social media in the past day to this, which I, I should say is coming from, I think, a decidedly kind of biased, and I might even say in some cases a bit of a paranoid kind of point of view, but it's not necessarily wrong, which is if we start going down this road, are we going to start finding domestic terrorist organizations all over the place? And are we going to start sort of, you know, applying that label too loosely to groups uh, in this country that we view as a threat when plenty of people would see these as, you know, however repugnant as political organizations, as activist groups. And then I think you're actually getting into a much stickier, weirder area uh, than if you were just purely, like, trying to investigate al-Qaeda cells. Yeah, right. you right. know, I just, I don't think that the word, the label terrorism is a trump card against all of our due process and civil liberties protections. Right. I think that's and what I, people are afraid of. Yeah, that. but yeah. I mean, to be perfectly honest, we went down that road 30 years ago and when we started treating these right-wing extremists as terrorist groups. And I think it's actually less likely that um, we would take the broad brush approach that some fear if we look at domestic terrorism as a phenomenon that can come from racist extremists, that can come from Islamist extremists. In other words, without a, a specific ideological um, flavor, and we just say domestic terrorism is domestic terrorism. The four attacks that we've had on American soil since 9-11 were all homegrown Islamist attacks. And so let's look at domestic recruitment, domestic extremism, as a unified phenomenon and combat it as such. So I do think that there is one very profound difference between domestic uh, white supremacist extremism and uh, overseas Islamic extremism that blows back toward us, which is the level of group organization of the violent activities themselves. So is greater among the white supremacists. No, 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 no. So <laughs> the, the, the major white supremacist organizations are actually pretty careful not to engage in violence. They have learned um, from uh, a lot of uh, experience over the years that uh, you can, in, they, they've been doing for the last 25, 30 years more or less what ISIS does now, which is inspire people who then act more or less on their own. So if you look at the Sikh temple shooter, he's his own actor. This guy is his own actor. They, they, they are inspired by these awful groups but they're not directed by. Now, Al-Qaeda, by contrast, is an organization that has had to move in that direction. ISIS really moved in that direction. But it has central leadership that is itself involved in violence. And that makes the dynamics of confronting them very, very different. Um, again, Do you I don't, think that, that remains true when you're talking just about the domestic American context? I mean... Malik Hassan, inspired by, not directed by. The Tsarnaev brothers, inspired by, not directed by. So that's the domestic threat. Well, so but but but, but remember, Hassan, of course, had direct correspondence with Anwar al alawki um, He is. Um, uh, I have no doubt that the Islamic uh, extremist groups are headed in this same direction. But if you look, ISIS is doing both. It is both fighting a war. As a unitary, you know, command and control apparatus, it's fighting a war and seizing territory, and it's inspiring people. The, you know, the Council of Concerned Citizens 
odious as they are, is not a military organization. And, you know, they're a group of awful racists who spread money around and inspire, uh, you know, some, apparently, some people to do some pretty awful things. And that makes that confrontation a much more complicated thing in somewhat the same way as it's how do you deal with these sort of lone wolf ISIS guys? You, um, and I think the white supremacist groups amp that up to an even higher level. Yeah, well, I have a feeling that the hearings probably will happen. It seems likely that that's just an easy thing for Grassley to do. Um, it'll be very. Well, they should. Happen. He should have them. He should have them. And it should not be that a group of Democrats. You know, it shouldn't be that Democrats are pro hearings on this and Republicans yeah. are. I mean, and I have to say, I mean, I, I, we, we just got the letter yesterday, but I was a little bit surprised that there were no Republican. Did you get any Republican uh, response to the letter? No, it kind of, you know, it just sort of, you know, happened and then yeah. just sort of went. All, Congress is out of town right now. Right. So, but um, yeah, I agree with that that it would be a shame if this was somehow seen as a partisan issue. Here, here, no yeah. partisanship. Yeah. Well, and 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 and, and, spe- <laughs> and specifically that you know a partisan issue around the idea that you know Republicans believe that when white supremacists kill people, it's something other than terrorism, and when right. Democrats believe that it's, I mean, this is. Although just, we should say two Republicans, I think both presidential candidates, they were both candidates, have called it domestic terrorism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, um, tomorrow your wordplay. Right. Well, um, I brought an article in uh, foreignpolicy.com by Micah Jenko from uh, the Council on Foreign Relations in which he calls for the establishment of a, uh, a national commission on the war on terrorism. Um, and I, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about his argument. Um, I, it's, not an ar- it's not an argument I agree with, but I do think that he's pointing to something important and he's part of a broader conversation that I want to ask you about. So basically he says um, that there is no coherent strategy to America's efforts uh, against terrorism in the Middle East or more more broadly. Um, Washington officials conflate local militancy with direct threats to the homeland, refuse to identify the enemy or the prioritization of adversaries, proclaim implausible strategic objectives, and stubbornly demonstrate no meaningful learning or adjustments over the past 13 years. The elements of the strategy remain unquestioned and subsequently ineffective. And um, he's not the only person in recent weeks to be highlighting uh, the, the fact that this administration has in many ways followed the previous administration in a militarized approach to combating Islamist extremism, um, but now has just expanded the scope of that, you know, beyond the Taliban, beyond al-Qaeda in Iraq and Afghanistan to the sort of broader war, um, particularly with the decision to bomb Mukhtar bel-Mukhtar in uh, in Libya and to declare ISIS in Libya as a threat as well. And so, you know, there are a lot of people questioning whether the United States has an effective strategy, whether it can have an effective strategy. Um, and Micah's response is say, well, let's get a bunch of former senior officials, bipartisan or nonpartisan, like the 9-11 Commission, uh, to do a, an outside-the-box diagnosis of the problem we face and how to combat it effectively. And Boring. His, well, okay, so it's a very Washington <laughs> you don't, you don't exercise, persuaded. and we can get to that in a minute. But 
part of the reason he's arguing for this, and this is what I really want to ask you guys about, is that he's saying that Washington is now um, entrapped by a kind of war on terror industry, that there are bureaucracies and companies and agencies that are just wedded to this failed strategy. And so we cannot, the government cannot, rethink this stuff on its own. That's why we need an outside commission. Do you buy that? I think that there, there is certainly an industry in which the government finds itself, I mean, maybe trapped is a good word. I don't know that I would say that, they, I'm not making a judgment on whether the policy is right or wrong. To sort of broadly paint the war on terrorism as a failure, I think, would miss the inarguably you know, tangible successes like, you know, killing Osama bin Laden, you know, a lot of the work that we've done dismantling some networks, of course, it's a hydra, and, you know, it just sort of crops back up again in the form of ISIS now. And what I like about his idea, and maybe this is not really what he's getting at, is some reassessment 15 years on, roughly, of what the policy is and what the new goal should be and what it's achieving. But what I kind of think is also interesting about his proposal is there's there's kind of this romanticism of the 9-11 Commission. Yes. You know, maybe deservedly so, but... Because, I mean, it was, it was an, an impressive piece of work. It was an impressive piece of history. It was a really good read. He is right to point out that the staff on that commission were uh, tremendous. Were tremendous. Uh, um, it was a rare display of bipartisanship. It was just a really, really good commission. And, of course, the American people wanted and needed it to be a really good commission. And but yet most of its recommendations, most important recommendations, were not implemented. Sure, and including, so in including that the sense, ones that affect Congress. By and, and, one of, and one of the ones that was implemented, it's not at all clear, that is the creation of the DNI and the reorganization right. of the intelligence community, it's not at all clear whether that was a good thing or not. Yeah, right. not to so, me. So romanticization in the sense that he perceives it as far more successful in policy terms than you think it yeah, was. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what I'm picking up in the article is a little bit of like, if only we had a 9-11 commission for the war on terrorism that could be as decisive and as important as the 9-11 commission was. And, I, and again, I think that just kind of, as Ben points out, overlooks the fact that a lot of the stuff they recommended didn't take hold. Some of it was rejected. Not all of it was great. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and we're kind of, you know, it's... Um, we're imagining these like halcyon days of blue ribbon panels that solved all our problems. I think you're both being way too nice to Micah here. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna uncork I my like grenade Micah. and throw a bomb into here. Um, so look, suggesting a national commission on something is what you do when you have a generic dissatisfaction with the way things are, and you have no idea what you want to recommend as a, as a substantive matter. And so you you say, gee, hard problem. What we need is a national commission to study this. And that's just the, the most overt conf- confession that I have no idea what to recommend myself, but I'm convinced that if you get a bunch of graybeards together, they'll recommend something and it'll be different from what there is. And here's the truth, at least as I see it, which is that the reason we have a, a, a global war on terror that has gone on for the last 15 years is not that there's an industry that supports it. It's not that there's a, uh, you know, that we have these funny drones and we like to use them. And it's not that there's a terrorism industrial complex. It's that there keep being these people who want to blow things up. <laughs> and oh, we, that. Right. And we find right. that capturing or killing them 
is the most convenient way to prevent them a lot of the time to blow things up. And so I propose having a national commission on stopping terrorists from wanting to blow things up. And maybe some major policy change will follow that. But I, I just find, you know, this is a way of, of lamenting the state of the world mm -hmm. that I don't have a whole lot of sympathy with. And it seems to me if you, if you have a suggestion for what we should be doing differently, make the damn suggestion for what we should be doing. I don't like this policy. We shouldn't be doing X. We should be doing Y instead. But saying that, like, if we just got, you know, Bob Gates and, you know, Madeleine Albright and I'm trying to think of a few other people of roughly the right age and experience level, you know, um, to, to sort of sit around and cogitate that all the things they weren't able to be do when they were in government would suddenly spring into their head and into this illuminating report is just kind of weak nonsense. You know, I hear you, and I actually don't disagree with you um, in that sense, but I, I do think it's worth asking why this spate of articles, whether it's Micah's or Rosa Brooks's last week, also in foreign policy, um, or or a host of others, um, why this spate of articles saying, oh, the United States has no strategy on the war on terror, I don't know that it has that much to do with the actual state of American strategy. I think it has more to do with, as you said, Ben, the state of the world. Yeah, it's the, intractable the problems. The nature of the problems that enable and exacerbate this extremist terrorism the scope of those problems is so vast that even the United States of America, the world's greatest superpower, can have only a limited impact. And so maybe we could have a more coherent strategy, but I think it's a bit of um, wishful thinking to say that if only we had a better strategy, all these problems would be resolved. I just don't think that is the world we're in. Yeah, and I think I'll just say one last point. is that this, this reminds me that I think what we really need is, you know, maybe we need a national commission on candor. Or ah. national commission on national commissions. National commissions, right? <laughs> because, I mean, who is in there? Who will be the politi brave politician who will go out there and stand up and say, guess what, folks? We're trying to get these guys as hard as we can. We're going to fail every now and then. Chances are an airplane's going to blow up every now and then. Yep. Chances are every 10 years, maybe 300 people are going to get killed. But you know what? Statistically speaking, that's pretty good. No one will say that, but that's true, and we all know it. Shane's now announcing his his run for office. Yes, from that the, chair on, of on the, the candor commission, on the candor, on the candor party, <laughs> exactly. The candor platform. I will be three hundred every few years. is not that bad. A success. <laughs> I don't know. You don't think that's a winning political strategy? I, I think it's a great slogan. Well, my kitchen cabinet thinks we're going to take it. All we can away. do from a. Your bumper sticker can be Shane Harris, colon, your mom's expendable. <laughs> I mean, she probably is. <laughs> She's not listening to this. Whatever. Hi, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Um, all right. Ben, uh, your wordplay. Things got positively nasty and snippy uh, uh, on the uh, August judiciary this week. Yes. Yeah, so, so the uh, FISA court has now had its chance to strike back against the Second Circuit, which uh, you'll recall ruled a few uh, weeks ago while the um, Congress was considering the USA Freedom Act, uh, that, that the FISA does not, 215, does not in fact authorize the metadata collection program. 
Well, now Congress has passed the USA Freedom Act, of course, and the USA Freedom Act bans bulk collection, but it bans bulk collection only starting 180 days from the date of passage, which means the FISA court rules that it authorizes bulk collection for the next 180 days. Get and it this, in now. And this means that the, the FISA court had to justify its opinion uh, in contrast, despite the ruling of a circuit court of appeals that this was not authorized, the FISA court ruled as follows. First of all, nah, 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 the Second Circuit ruling does not bind us. Um, secondly, the Second Circuit is wrong. Uh, it, uh, and third, and this is the part that I love, the FISA court accuses the Second Circuit of misdescribing the program and not even describing it accurately, describing it inaccurately and in an outdated fashion. So the FISA court, in a 26-page opinion dated June 29th, basically tells the Second Circuit, with all due respect, put it where the moon don't shine. Mm -hmm. Did um, he actually say with all due respect, or did he oh, just say oh, put he, it where the uh, moon don't shine? There were some great shine. lines. There are some really good lines in there. Here, here. So, the 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 FISA court uh, writes to a considerable extent, the Second Circuit's analysis rests on mischaracterizations of how this program works and on understandings that, if they had once been correct, have been superseded by the USA Freedom Act. Um, so there's a there's a um, uh, a Sub, uh, subtext of real irritation here on the part of the FISA court judge who wrote this opinion at the way the Second Circuit, uh, characterized, uh, the 215 program and the way the Second Circuit characterized the FISA court's own, uh, work in upholding it. And I think part of the subtext here is that these judges are a little bit irritated at being treated as a sort of lesser judicial body by uh, uh, courts outside of the FISA system. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I read this. First off, we should note the first line of the of the opinion is in French. It is in French. Ooh la and, la. And I'm not going to say it in French, but it's the it's the it, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, Maybe someone here. At least for 180. days. At least for 180 days. So you just like you just imagine him just sitting there, kind of, mm -hmm, you know, yeah. as he's writing this opinion. Like, you know, you're in for like a real treat, rhetorically, anyway. Um, and then you know he kind of goes through in this in this you know. Um, not quite lecturing tone, but sort of so almost like you can imagine him saying certain saying to the you know the Second Circuit anyone reading it like now this is the law that Congress passed and here's where it says 180 <laughs> right right I mean it's that kind of tone and it, it gets this is my favorite part of it he says you know and as, as if the law weren't clear enough he said we can also go back to the legislative history where multiple members of Congress were saying we'd have this bridge period etc and then he kind of undercutting himself but this like sort of rhetorical flippancy I love he says. To some degree, finding supportive legislative history for a proposition is a little like stumbling upon a multifamily garage sale. If you rummage around long enough, you will find something for everybody, and none of it is none of it is worth much. <laughs> That's just great. I mean, you know, how often do we really see real color and personality from judges? Do you think that that was um, maybe also intended as a slight swipe at the ACA decision by the Supreme Court last week? It, maybe it was. That's interesting. I think yeah. it's. I think it's really. You know, so this is Judge uh, Michael Mossman, and I, I think the, 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 the real subtext of this is 
that the FISA court, or the, the, the Second Circuit wrote its opinion with this tone, now that real judges with real adversarial process get a look at this, we find, you know, X, uh. Y, and Z. And this guy is coming back and saying, well, la-di-da, I can yeah. do the real judge thing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What, I'm just delighted to see the level of professionalism Professionalism, maturity, and, and it's just it's, a... It's and these just, guys are appointed for life, right? It's, well, not to the that FISA court. Yeah. Uh, it's just a great showmanship. Uh, and, you know, now that this is going to be one of the huge benefits of having these uh, FISA court proceedings now more out in public is that we'll be able to read these yeah. snippy little things more often, and that's why you listen to Rational Security. That's right, because we get we, we, we bring you the highlights. And there were, by the way, there were um, uh, amici, amicus. Uh, yes, former Virginia right-wing attorney general Ken Cuccinelli representing the Tea Party group yep. Freedom Works. That's right. Awesome. This, your government that's at right. work So these here. people were allowed, so that's that's a new change, too. So this is, that's we're going to have... Transparency, process. how about yeah. that? That's great. I, I can only hope that Judge Mossman is writing all of the opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll start the next one in German. Or with a haiku. <laughs> Latin. I yes. want Latin. Oh, please do it for me, Judge. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tamara, would you like to start? Sure. So, um, you know, last week uh, for, I think, most of us observing the Supreme Court decisions, the um, decision by the South Carolina governor to move toward taking the Confederate flag down from the state statehouse, uh, President Obama's incredibly moving uh, and powerful address uh, as his eulogy for Clementa Pinckney. It was an incredible week for domestic um, American politics, but I was thinking too about what it means for America in the world and more broadly for this um, set of idea-based arguments that the United States is having, not just with Islamist extremists, but with countries like Russia and China, um, or even those who just say that maybe you know this Western liberal democratic model doesn't um, doesn't really sell to the world anymore. Um, and I think it was a great uh, week for American soft power. Uh, and President Obama said it really well in in his uh, eulogy for Clementa Pinckney, and also in in uh, the remarks he gave after the gay marriage ruling came down. Uh, where he talked about, you know, the American idea that uh, every individual has not just equal rights, but the equal opportunity given by those rights to pursue their own version of happiness, to pursue their vision of themselves. And that's the thing that the United States offers, I, I think, in a, you know, that, that the rest of the world truly admires. Um, and so it was, it was a great, um, week to sort of spread that message in a very powerful way and also to see the United States using its democratic institutions to kind of correct um, to correct some of the deficits in that ideal vision. And so I decided to celebrate this in a way that was appropriate not only to the to the theme but also to the summer um, by creating my own version of perfect happiness. This is my love wins fruit salad. That Very, I made. It's a rainbow fruit salad. It is a rainbow flag fruit salad that I made for Friday Cantaloupe. night dinner. 
pineapple, honeydew, blueberries, and blackberries. Yeah, so we we nice. actually found you know some purplish fruit. It nice. tasted good too. I and bet it did. <laughs> that's great. So there there's my vision of happiness I, right there. I think that's a perfectly great vision. I think the connection between that and U.S. soft power though is really weak. Well, maybe, I'm just, maybe the fruit salad, yeah. but not the idea behind the fruit I'm just, salad. I'm just trying to go from object to, to, to your look. I mean, these connections can be, you know, amorphous and amorphous inspiring. And diffuse. But I, I'm with I'm with Mara. I'm, I'm, I agree I'm, with all I'm the sentiments. I'm just, just, just having trouble connecting the object to the. But the fruit salad, I have to say, it was delicious. Yeah, there you didn't go. have any problem eating the fruit I salad. I sure didn't. Apparently. Okay, we'll do my object next. My object is Equip. That is E-Q-I-P. Uh, Equip is a web-based platform. Was. Was. <laughs> yeah, can you have that object if it's now gone? That's true. It's an object that is now <laughs> gone. So it used to be that if you were submitting uh, or someone on your behalf were submitting forms for you to get a security clearance, including uh, information from background interviews and things that are used to adjudicate said process, you put it into this thing called Equip, which very... Uh, handily connected to the OPM and the DOD's and the People's systems. Liberation Army and now the People's Liberation <laughs> Army. So, uh, with, with, in a press release uh, this week, um, OPM announced that they had suddenly taken down the Equip system that it would be down for the next four to six weeks because they found a security vulnerability in it. They were quick to emphasize <laughs> it's a new one, and we don't think this one's been exploited. This is different from the other vulnerability. Oh the other God, hat. that's even worse than closing the barn door right. after the horse. There's has another fled. barn door that they found also <laughs> open, but apparently there's no horses that went through it. Thank God, they already all went gone. through the other one. Through the other one. But for those of us who, Mike and myself, have been reporting on this and watching this, this was like it was such a head slapper because. You know, this system is kind of like a, it's like an it's like an axle or a linchpin. I mean, it's really it's a big deal that this was taken down. And what it effectively means, and OPM tried to put the best gloss on this, is that as far as I can tell, the security clearance granting process is is stopped. Either that, or we're going back to like you know hand delivering things because without this this system was more than just a web kind of platform. It was like actually a bridge between two other very large systems. And raises even more questions about whether those two are connected to yet a third database that the intelligence community operates. Um, uh, and uh, I wrote about that this week too. Um, and whether that got hacked. So yeah, equip. We are not equipped for the Chinese cyberspace. Wow. I, I have a proposal for a new equips substitute, which is that carrier pigeons? No. Anyone who is applying for security clearance should just install webcams throughout their home so that the world can see them in the bathroom, at dinner, you know, all of their interactions. And, you know, we'll just have open security. There you go. You'll be able to get away with anything. That's right. It will all be revealed to everyone. Awesome. Ben, what is your object? My object, so this is going to take a minute, um, Lawfare has uh, two new interns this summer, one of whom is sitting right here with us, Staley Smith. Hi, Staley. Hi. And Staley uh, discovered recently a long history on Lawfare of what we might call robotics practicums. That is, playing with robots and then writing posts about them. So one of them... This uh, is research. It's very serious. Yes, research. it's very serious stuff. So one of them is, uh, of course, the famous Lawfare Drone Smackdown, which Shane Harris was, uh, as some listeners will recall, the judge of. 
but we also have and Ben won, and I won through using cyber attacks. Um, and but one of them uh, was, for example, flying a drone around the Brookings Institution uh, in preparation for the smackdown. We 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 did some surveillance around Brookings, and then once uh, my friend Andrew Barine, who was then uh, a a executive for the company Recon Robotics brought a little surveillance uh, robot in and we did a film about um, driving it around Brookings and spying on Bill Galston and, um, and Daryl West. Um, and so Staley has uh, rather bitterly complained that we do not have any robotics practicums planned for this summer. And I was thinking about it last night and she's right. We need some... We need some robots to play with here at Brookings. Um, so I am suggesting the Lawfare Drone Smackdown Part 2, oh. um, which is going to take place as follows. If you are a robotics company or a drone company, send us your drone to try out. Don't you Just lend it to us for a few days. We will... We'll uh, wreck it for you. We will play it, play with it at Brookings. We will test it. We will write about it on Lawfare. We will have fun with it, and we will. Uh, uh, if you want to come in and demonstrate your robots, um, we will uh, have you in, and we'll interview you and play with whatever kind of robots you can bring to Brookings. Um, I say with Emma Lazarus, give me your tired robots, your poor robots. Your huddled masses of robots learning to breathe free. Bring them on. We will, uh, we will write about them on Lawfare. Staley is very excited about this. And we're gonna, we're gonna play with robots this summer at Brookings. Uh, but we need your help to do it. So tweet this invitation. Uh, let's use the hashtag playwithrobots at Brookings and, uh, bring them on. <laughs> I love this. Um, I, I want to come play with the robots too. Yeah, I think we can make it a. We can a, have robots on the podcast. A joint totally. rational security uh, lawfare project of playing with robots, and we will start tweeting at robotics companies. In fact, I'm going to assign Staley to that as soon as I write a uh, lawfare post about this. We're going to tweet taunts at robotics companies. Bring in your robots. I think the robots should host the podcast while I'm on vacation. Oh. <laughs> Let's see if, if anyone has a robot that could possibly substitute for Shane Harris. I doubt it. Although that robot in Interstellar was pretty cool. <laughs> Maybe it was a, um, I think it's a great idea, and hopefully um, none of us will get arrested. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> I'm afraid you, I can't. You know, the, uh, there is an FAA uh, no-drone rule in D.C. Oh, we know. Uh, what about <laughs> no, 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 no. For this weekend, particularly. There oh, really? Stiff fines and prison sentences for they're, the they're threatening for 4th of July. It's a no-drone zone. Right, we're definitely not going to do the drones the 4th of July. Indoors. Indoors. Yeah. Oh, that's it's, a better it's totally okay indoors. Oh, okay, then that's fine. That's fine. The, the Brookings Amphitheater doesn't even know what's about to happen to it. <laughs> that's all. Nobody tells Strobe Talbot. Okay, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find uh, our roster of all our great podcasts at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com you can follow us at RATL Security. <clears throat> Watch out for this Brookings Robot hashtag uh, that will soon be coming as well. Um, please uh, help us out by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you subscribe uh, and leaving a rating or a comment when you are there. It's a great way to tell other people about the show, which we know you love. Uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music for this week was performed by Judge Michael Mossman and the Stray Cats. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> Stray cat strut. That's right. Just, he's strut. <laughs> On behalf of my friends Tamar Coffin Wittes and Ben Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week and have a great Fourth uh, of July. Happy Independence Day. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.